This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on the Chorus Radio Network. Let's talk about big tech and whether there's a case to be made for further regulation of big tech, specifically Google and Facebook. Now, this concerns uh, news content and the news industry. It's an organization in Canada called News Media Canada that's been pushing the federal government uh, to take this kind of an approach. And look, all we've all the signals we've heard uh, from the government, from the heritage minister in particular, that we're definitely looking at going down this path. And the so-called Australian model is held up. And so essentially then Australia wants these companies to, to cough up, to pay up, to pay media organizations for the news content they use as part of their online search and social media services. And so it becomes an interesting question. At what point are they using this content as opposed to directing people to that content right if if i write something or i publish something and uh, people are sharing a link to it on facebook that's good for me because presumably people are, are clicking on it but it's it's good for facebook too because obviously then there's there's content available and people are sharing it and people are engaging via facebook so Australia took that approach, and I suppose it seems straightforward enough, but it didn't go so well initially uh, that Facebook wanted no part of this. Uh, there was a Facebook news blackout essentially in Australia, although word today that uh, there's some kind of a compromise perhaps here. A story from Reuters says Facebook backed down from its news blackout in Australia after the government agreed to amend its legislation forcing the tech giant and Google to pay local publishers for content. So maybe there is a way to, to proceed with something like this, but uh, this shows kind of the, the pitfalls of that. And anyway, joining us uh, for some, some thoughts on, you know, the lessons learned, I guess, so far from Australia's experience and, and how we should approach this, this whole question in the first place. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this morning, Dwayne Winsack, who is a professor at the School of Journalism and Communication at Carleton University. Dwayne, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me, Rob. Pleasure to be here. Uh, so I don't know, is this, this compromise? I mean, is, is this a happy ending to the Australia versus Facebook uh, situation? Or what, what do you read into that? Yeah, well, I think it's too early to tell. You know, I woke up this morning and scrambled to try to see what the latest uh, breaking news uh, was uh, in Australia. And, you know, I think you just gave a, a nice summary uh, of it. It looks like there's uh, a bit of uh, revision to the bill going on, a bit of a compromise, some more time. Uh, for Facebook in particular, uh, to strike the kinds of deals with Australian uh, news media companies like the ones that uh, Google had been doing uh, over the last two weeks in the run-up uh, to this bill actually becoming law. So um, too early to tell, a lot of moving bits and pieces here, <laughs> um, but some interesting developments, I think, again, as you, you've noted. 
So let's take a step back because, you know, I think that, the, I mean, like the conversation that's happening here is similar to the conversation that's happening in Australia and other countries. Uh, so what, what has precipitated this in, in your view? Why are we at this point where, you know, this is all, all on the table? Well, I think uh, what Australia is doing and what we're thinking about doing here in Canada is to face the reality that online uh, services have now become highly concentrated around a small number of tech giants, uh, in particular in the online advertising uh, market. We have two companies, uh, Google and Facebook, that have uh, a duopoly, basically two companies controlling in Australia about uh, Two-thirds of uh, online advertising revenue in that country, and in Canada, it's around 80% uh, of online advertising. So this is a, a very large and fast-growing uh, market, and right now, two companies dominate it. And so I think what you're seeing with Australia is they're trying to deal with the reality of that market dominance and to create a regulatory framework that will try to offset those power imbalances and allow news media companies to get a, a better shake uh, at um, eking out an existence from this online advertising system. It's interesting because, I mean, look, there, there's no Google News unless someone's coming up with this news. I mean, Google doesn't generate news. Facebook doesn't generate news. So, so certainly they rely on these news companies. On the other hand, I mean, Google and Facebook say, this is good for you guys. We're, we're providing links to your content. People are accessing your content through us. So, so who's right? Yeah, well, you know, unfortunately, I don't think there are, uh, you know, uh, any clear-cut good guys uh, in, this, uh, in this regulatory battle uh, right now. You know, I think both companies can probably get away uh, without uh, the news. I mean, Facebook uh, constantly points to the fact that uh, news accounts for a very small portion of all of the uh, content available through the Facebook uh, service. And I think they're probably right on that. But the problem is, is that both companies have built up an online advertising system around uh, content that they uh, link to, make available through their services and so on. And in that online advertising market, the problem is, is that news media companies have very little insight into how that uh, market works. They have very little insight into how advertising is actually placed around their own uh, content. They get no insight into uh, the audience uh, data. Uh, they get no insight into how the whole advertising uh, market uh, works. And so they're trying to crack open this black box to get a better peek inside, and the uh, assumption is, is once they get a better peek inside and everybody's able to see how the inner workings of these black box machines work, that <clears throat> they're going to be able to cut a better deal. And I mean, it is basically anybody that's looking at this now, and there's been a number of investigations around the world, including in Australia and the UK and elsewhere, that basically show the whole online advertising system is murky. It's based on a lot of fraudulent data about audiences. There's a new case out in the U.S. that basically says Facebook has been overstating the reach uh, of its uh, audiences and selling advertising around these overstated uh, figures for audience size and engagement and basically creaming off uh, the excess revenue from these fraudulent figures upon which the whole online advertising system is, is based. Yeah. So bringing all this stuff out into the sunshine, I think, is meant to kind of clean up what some people are derisively calling the dirty web.
Well, and it's interesting because I do think a lot of this comes down to ad dollars and, and certainly for traditional media outlets, uh, having to compete with Google and Facebook for ad dollars has, has been a real challenge. And I, I think a lot of this conversation ultimately comes back to that question. It's about ad dollars. It's about uh, revenue. And if look, if, if domestic media, if they can't make a go of it, then you cease to exist, right? So it, it, it kind of becomes existential in, in that sense. So I mean, it does, does a lot of this come down to then the fight over ad dollars, maybe more than anything else? Well, it certainly does. But again, like so much of this stuff, it's so complicated. You know, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, commercial media in this country or anywhere else around the world have any God-given uh, right to have a lock on advertising. And the reality is, is that um, Facebook and Google and other uh, ad-based internet services have come along and proven much more effective at delivering audiences to advertisers, and therefore media companies are behind the eight ball uh, there. The other kind of problem here is that commercial news media companies in this country and in Australia have been in trouble for a lot longer uh, than Google and Facebook have been around as significant forces and a lot longer than even the internet itself uh, has been a significant uh, force uh, in the world. I mean, we can trace the uh, woes of uh, newspapers in this country back to the 1980s when circulation peaked, and it's fallen ever since. Advertising revenue peaked in the 1990s, kind of stayed flat for half a decade there, and has been falling uh, for the last basically two decades. And there's a lot of self-inflicted wounds uh, in Canada by media companies that went through kind of an orgy of consolidation in the 1990s and early 2000s that saddled these companies with basically untenable balance sheets and debts precisely at the time that they needed all hands on deck to engage uh, with the emerging internet-centric environment and the new uh, Goliaths on the block. So this is not an easy problem to solve. Um, and I don't like to uh, lead or lend to the picture that somehow the news media companies uh, in this country or in Australia are the innocents here who have been, you know, beleaguered by, uh, you know, the rapacious, as I call them, vampire squids from Silicon Valley. It's much more complex than this. Um, so, but the Australian model, I do think, actually provides us with a good starting place to have a grown-up talk about what needs to be done. Yeah, and it's interesting because there, there are a lot of competing issues at play here. But I, I guess for, from the Canadian government's perspective, they got to figure out wh what is our interest in all of this? Are, are we concerned about journalism? Are we concerned about, you know, companies that, that pay tax here? Are we concerned about fairness? Are we concerned about, you know, the way that big tech operates? And, and I guess if the government's going to go down a certain path, you need to answer that question first. What is our objective mm -hmm. here? What are we trying to achieve? What's the broader national interest? Do you, do you get the sense that they've figured that out yet? Um, it's a work in progress. You know, I've been compiling a list of all these public inquiries that have been taking place around the world because my head's just been spinning trying to take, yeah. uh, you know, keep track of what's going on. And, and that list now that I've uh, compiled with a colleague from Switzerland now has 95 entries long. And most of those have taken place right. in the last three to five years. Right. So there's definitely a scramble to sort things out. But in many ways, I think what the Australian case teaches us, but what is proven to be so elusive is that there are really three cornerstones here that 
I think apply to all countries that if they were dealt with honestly, as opposed to various lobbying groups trying to kind of uh, bend public policy to private interests, we could get somewhere. The first, I think the major common problem that we see in Australia and in Canada is media concentration, right? And what the Australian code basically does is it kind of sets aside uh, the domestic affairs where there's an extraordinarily high level of media concentration with the News Corp and Murdoch uh, company uh, at its core um, has basically been setting the agenda, right? And here we see the same thing through News Media Canada. The incumbents trying to set the public policy uh, agenda, wrapping themselves in the flag, um, but not considering their own uh, contributions to this problem and the issue of concentration. The second thing, I think, is that we've got a problem with uh, um, personal data and privacy protection. And neither the big tech giants or uh, the traditional media companies want to see stronger personal uh, privacy and data protection uh, rules. In fact, one of the weaknesses of the Australian code, in my uh, view, is that instead of trying to rein in the kind of rapacious surveillance capitalism model, as some uh, people call it, that motors uh, Facebook and Google, basically what the Australian model says is that they're going to give the traditional media companies a bigger slice of the big data pie. And then the last thing, um, I just say here, Rob, to finish, and I'll make it quick, is that Journalism is a public good, and it is essential to a functioning democracy. And so we need to understand that public good element to it and support it properly. And we can earmark tax revenue from big tech and other countries to that purpose. We'll leave it there. Uh, More from you at nationalobserver.com, by the way. Uh, Professor Winsick, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Okay, well, thank you very much for having me, Rob. All right. All the best. Take care. Uh, That is uh, Dwayne Winsack uh, joining us uh, on the line. He's a a professor of journalism and communication at Carleton University, writes at nationalobserver.com. So, yeah, I think it puts it in perspective that they're kind of separate issues here that that are kind of getting all blurred into one. That it's not necessarily Google and Facebook versus journalism. But, I mean, there's, there's part of that there. So I think the federal government needs to figure out what they see as the issue, what they see as the national interest, and what it is they're trying to achieve. None of that is really clear, which I, I think that, that's, that's a big problem if we're going to set down a, a path of implementing policy and we're not exactly sure what it is we're, we're identifying as a problem or what it is we're trying to achieve. So we'll see where this all goes from here. We'll take a pause. We'll come back. A few things to get to before the top of the hour. Much more still to get to here today. We are back with more right after this. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. Our number in Calgary, 403-974-8255. In Edmonton, 780-496-0063. So we'll have some time for your calls coming up after 1130. Uh, something else happening today, which is interesting, the Premier and the Justice Minister are holding a press conference to talk a bit more about the legal challenge uh, that's uh, underway, being heard in the Alberta Court of Appeal this week against the Federal Impact Assessment Act, uh, which was uh, also known as, well, previously known as Bill C-69. I mean, once a bill has passed, I guess we typically don't refer to it by its number, but people remember the debate. C-69 and C-48 were two pieces of federal legislation dealing with uh, natural resources that, that certainly caught the ire of the Alberta government and many Albertans for that matter. So C-48 was the uh, West Coast tanker ban. 
C-69 was the much bigger legislation that overhauled the entire process for how projects will be assessed, not just pipelines, not just oil and gas projects, but all kinds of different projects. Which again, and the point's been made many times, why the need for both? If you've got a, a new impact assessment act that is meaningful, that is thorough, that takes into consideration the environment. Then what is the point of the West Coast tanker ban? And it's not even the entire West Coast, obviously, because there is still all kinds of tanker traffic uh, coming and going out of Burnaby in that whole area. And the government has talked in circles on this. Well, we need the West Coast tanker ban because we got to protect this area. Well, if the area is vulnerable, if uh, that area isn't an area where there should be pipelines or tankers or anything else, well, how would that then get through the Impact Assessment Act? If your point is that we now have a process that's going to take all of that into consideration and it's not going to say yes to any project that's going to have some, some detrimental impact on the environment, then there's no need for the West Coast tanker ban. So I don't know if that's part of the government's legal argument, but it just in a political sense, I think it shows what a sham the, the West Coast tanker ban policy was. Now, in terms of whether the Impact Assessment Act goes too far, that would be an interesting one. Look, the federal government previously had jurisdiction in this area. So we'll hear from the Premier and the Justice Minister a little bit uh, later on this afternoon as to, you know, what this court challenge is all about, why the province believes that the feds have gone too far this time. I'm not convinced. I, I think you can argue maybe that, that the new uh, Impact Assessment Act is flawed, but does the federal government go outside its jurisdiction here? It's an interesting question. By the way, and uh, at a piece today um, in, in the uh, Calgary Herald and Edmonton Journal, on uh, one area where I do think the federal government has gone beyond its jurisdiction, where the Alberta government is, is right to assert its jurisdiction, is on this whole idea of the municipal handgun ban. Now, this isn't something that necessarily needs to go to court, although I wonder if at some point it will. Essentially, what we have is the federal government proposing to tell cities that they can create bylaws to more strictly regulate handguns. I don't know if they can actually ban handguns. The federal government could. But they're going to give municipalities the power if they want. Now, the powers that municipalities have stem from the province via the Municipal Government Act. So the Alberta government's going to just sort of step in and kind of short-circuit this whole farce by making it clear in the Municipal Government Act that any bylaws that a city passes that have to do with firearms are subject to the approval of the provincial government. In other words, the province is saying, look, stay to your lane, federal government. Municipalities are our jurisdiction. Federal government certainly has jurisdiction over firearms. And look, if Ottawa wants to ban handguns, they probably could. Even if Ottawa wanted to say we're going to ban handguns, but only in cities of a certain size, they could probably do that too. But the idea that the province uh, has to make way so the federal government can create a new power for cities just doesn't make sense. And keep in mind, it's not as though cities have the power to ban other firearms. Cities certainly don't have the power to loosen restrictions on firearms. The federal government is proposing that they can do this one tiny thing and only that thing. But that's not how it works. 
So all of that is to say, look, I think there are going to be areas where the federal government does overstep its its jurisdiction, and the fed, and the provincial government definitely needs to stand up. I, I think that the arguments around C-69 are mostly political in nature. Look, obviously, uh, the province has some jurisdiction, a lot of jurisdiction when it comes to natural resources. So I may be overlooking some some nuance here. But I think ultimately it comes down to just a lot of Albertans don't like the federal liberal approach on these matters. But that's political, not necessarily constitutional. So anyway, make note of that. The uh, the Premier and the Justice Minister are going to be holding a uh, press conference this afternoon. Uh, and of course, we are going to hear uh, later on today from uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, who, by the way, and as you've been hearing, was, was clarifying some of what she said yesterday. Uh, because she made it sound that any move to phase two of the, the relaunch or the reopening wouldn't happen March 1st. It would have to happen March 8th. But then she, she clarified today that it is still possible that we could see some reopenings next week. Uh, that, that when it comes to hospitalizations, things have been trending in the right direction. Maybe when it comes to cases, we've plateaued a little bit. Some concern that the R value is just slightly above one at the moment. Uh, but she clarified today saying that, yeah, if, if we're in a position as of Monday, March 1st, to ease restrictions, that we can do so. That the part about the seven-day heads up that was more so for restaurants going into phase one, that they wanted some advance notice so they could you know, get staff back and, and have food and, and that kind of stuff, supplies on hand. Uh, that when it comes to other businesses like fitness centers, for, for an example, uh, that if the announcement went out March 1st, then they could probably open March 1st. So that clarification. Again, we're not going to get any firm answer today or probably this week, but... Just some clarification on that point. All right. When we come back, some interesting new research regarding dreams and sleep. we got some open line time coming up. It's Rob Breckenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.